This is the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm Brent, joined as always by Matthew and Joshua. And today we're on episode 26. Today's topic, we're gonna go through, does Dave Ramsey give good financial advice? And I think this is a hot topic that a lot of people want to know because he is so well known and he has a big presence that is the advice that you're actually hearing from him, worthwhile advice. But before I start that, what are you guys doing to really stay busy and get out of the house? Well, as we talked about in the last episode, I picked up golf again. So I've been playing a little golf with some of my friends on the weekend. My wife and I have been taking some strolls around the neighborhood, get the fresh air. Done a couple drives. I actually really like driving out to Rancho Cucamonga now from Los Angeles. It's a nice, relaxing drive. It takes about 50, 55 minutes. And then uh, good old faithful, watching a little Netflix. I feel like yeah. we've almost burned through the whole library. Now, I heard that traffic starting to pick up, traveling that way, back and forth, right? Uh, I haven't seen it, really. Um, there's been a few accidents. Uh, I, I think people are speeding. Um, I have noticed there's been some traffic in the downtown LA region. So probably people picking up their morning commutes a little bit more. But it's, it's I mean, you leave, you know, in the afternoon. It's a nice drive. What are you doing, Josh? Uh, I don't mean to to copy Matt, but uh, golf as well. I actually uh, played with Matt this weekend. And so uh, golf is back in my life and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and then the same too, we have uh, two dogs, Memphis and Mila, that me and my wife take out for walks. Um, and we also started riding bikes outside. So I really liked um, the spin classes before all of this started, but never really rode a, a bike outside. So we started riding bikes and that's that's been a lot of fun. Uh, even uh, got my wife a new new bike for uh, she graduated. So shout out to her and, and got her a new bike for her graduation. So yeah, we've been taking the kids out. Uh, we take the occasional drive also, uh, taking them swimming every once in a while. And then I've been taking uh, my son to the park, the baseball fields. They're not obviously closed off, so I'm out there hitting baseballs, and that's fun. But I think there's a lot of pent up energy with the kids and they're ready to get back out there and start playing. So we've been trying to do a lot of that, just get them out of the house. And I think everybody's ready to, to be out and, and doing more normal things again. Yeah. So let's get to some of the hot take headlines. Meat plants have been hit hard by COVID. And here's really how some of the story has gone. I think Smithfield, the pork factory in Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota, was actually one of the first hard hit. Uh, factories and then Tyson Foods has been another one that has been really hit hard from my understanding that a lot of these people work in congregated areas where it's it's tight spaces they're kind of shoulder to shoulder and in these tight spaces where they're working the whole time it seems like it's actually one of the hottest places where it's been spreading uh, there's been a tremendous amount of spread in these factories which has led to a lot of speculation about food shortages. Uh, what do you guys know about this? Yeah, I, I know people, I know there's probably going to be, you know, uh, the supply chain disruption, especially on, on the low end for pricing. Was it Wendy's that was saying that they didn't have meat for their, for their hamburgers? It's kind of strange because I think they sell hamburgers. So not really sure how they're selling like grilled cheese. They're going to start pushing the chicken fingers more. Uh, uh, yeah, the chicken fingers. But really, I think meat's just going to become a luxury item like it was in the past in this country. From what I've heard, like a lot of the premium cuts or, you know, the grass-fed beef or, or organic beef is uh, 
a little bit easier to come by. It's the it's the cheaper, more factory farm meats that are, are really struggling and selling out. But if prices rise, then that's going to really cap people out from buying meat. What, what's sad is these factories can't get a lot of these animals in there, and these animals are ready to come into the factories, and then now they're just basically having to euthanize the animals, and then there's you know there's just obviously a ton of money involved and I know that's hard for the farmers and the factories but now they're so backed up my question is though is like when you have Sioux Falls where they've had I think like a thousand cases plus in their Smithfield factory like don't you get herd immunity within the factory at some point I'm not I'm not sure I mean I, I guess but like I don't even know if herd immunity is real like it's it's just so hard to trust people man like I, I know like some of the more prominent COVID research, like, oh, yeah, we got to get up to herd immunity. But then, like, there's been, like, some other people, like, I, I don't know if herd immunity is ever going to happen. I don't know if that's, like, a real thing that could actually take place. So, Right, but if you have so many people in the factory that have had it, then is there very, like, they've already had it, so they should be able to pick up their supply chain in there, right? I guess there's one more question, though. It's, like, are those people actually coming back to work? You know, they were right. sick. Um, do they feel comfortable coming back? you know, what, what is their belief on the virus? And if, can I get it again? Or can I get it again and spread it to one of my family members who hasn't had it? So I think it's probably, you know, a lot of, a lot of variables in there that it's making it just even more difficult for these plants to, to operate. Yeah. I think the biggest question that most people want to know, I mean, obviously the, they're being so hard hit these factories, but the question is, is it going to impact people being able to get meat, get food, those prices going to go up. And I think, from everything that I've looked at for some time, that's most likely going to happen where prices are really going to go up. Yeah. And I think another thing to talk about with this is that grocery stores are limiting, you know, how much meat you can buy. So for bigger families, if you have more than, you know, four people or you have, you know, grandparents or children living with you, limiting, you know, buying meat, going to the grocery store is going to be an issue for these families and just being able to put, you know, meat on the table. But like Matt said, I mean, then it just becomes a luxury and you're going to have to resort to alternatives. Uh, Germany's soccer league, the Bundesliga, started on Saturday the 16th. I know UFC started back up this weekend. NASCAR started back up. PJ started scheduled to start up in June. When will the four main pro sports really come back, or will they not? Speaking of sporting events, Josh, you want to get together and do the little pay-per-view Tiger versus Phil match since we're big golf guys now? Oh, yeah. I think, I think that's coming up over the Bill Mickelson, Tom Brady. Tiger yeah. Woods, Peyton Manning, they just hit it right, right? It just interests everybody. Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning. Uh, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, I think that will be, that'll be fun. Maybe we'll play it around and watch that. But to answer your question, Brett, I don't know if they come back. Like, I've had this new thought. You guys tell me if I'm wrong. But I don't think NBA, MLB, or NHL come back at all this year because of money and players' rights. But the one league that has the doesn't is extremely greedy – and doesn't care about their players is the NFL. So, like, you would think they actually come back, right? And they seem like the most positive. There's the most positive news probably because of timing as well. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't start until September. But um, more positive news out of the NFL for sure of them actually playing this year. They've been a hard yes since day one. They're like, we're playing. <laughs> like, they, 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 they have not stopped. They're, they did the draft. They're pushing forward on training camps. They are moving forward. I heard that they're also working on the helmets so that 
there's some kind of uh, respiratory like N95 thing on the helmet. So it will relieve them from like breathing on other players. But I guess one of the questions that I have is if what happens when one player on the team tests positive, you just say, okay, that player's quarantine and just keep testing everybody, but you continue games on as necessary. Yeah, that's going to be really hard. And with that many people on a football team, I mean, you have so many people that are making this decision to somewhat quarantine themselves, right? Because they're being exposed to so many people. So this decision has to be made with their families, their children. I mean, there's just a lot that goes into going back to playing your sport. And then how are they going to pay them? There's no fans. So that question becomes a big issue like Matt just talked about. What if, though, I could totally see a scenario where you're watching – like a Dallas Cowboys game and the stadium is filled. And then you're watching like a New York Jets or San Francisco 49ers or my home team, the LA Rams play. And the stadiums are completely empty, right? Because it's kind of like state by state now. It's like the wild, wild west out there. Yeah. What about, but see, then again, what about Canada? Completely different country. We have all of our our sports leagues have to think about the Canadian teams and what they're going to do and what their regulations are too. So another roadblock even within our sports because we integrate a different country within them. That's true. Really weird we play sports with Canada. I just thought about that. Why do we do that? But not all states legalize sports gambling. What if they just legalize sports gambling from all of the, for all the sports and then the teams have a revenue share? Here was my thought also. That's like true. If you, if... <laughs> you didn't like that idea? <laughs> If you have players, like if you look at soccer players or you look at baseball players, you look at hockey players, like they're or in basketball, like their their build or physical build is very fit and and they're very healthy people. But if you look at like linemen in the NFL, like defensive linemen or offensive linemen, like they're they're paid to put on weight. Like they're this isn't a virus that those types of players should be getting, you know, just based on what we've seen. So won't we feel like the NFL has sort of the biggest risk with their athletes? NFL doesn't care about their players. I would agree, but that, like, dude, they're pretty, uh, they're pretty clear. Like, how long did they bury the concussion story for? 20 years? 25 years? And the lack of just the guaranteed contracts within the sport. I mean, anyone can get cut any time and not make any money. They'll probably, that's probably how it's going to work. Someone gets, gets uh, COVID, the team will just cut them. Awful. Yeah. Uh, the stock market has been going up for a while now. The economic data is getting worse. The Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said over the weekend on 60 Minutes that there is a lot more that they can do for the economy. And, quote, we are not out of ammunition by a long shot. That, with along with uh, Moderna coming out over the, on Monday morning, saying that they're entering into phase three, I believe, of the vaccine virus testing. And everyone in phase one, the 45 people that were tested, to actually developed the antibody. Uh, what's really besides those in the, the market surge that we saw shortly, what's really causing the market to rise when economic data is just getting worse and worse? Yeah, Brian, I think you pretty much nailed it. I mean, I think we're moving into kind of a coronavirus vaccine market, right? So like there's really been no negative news. So therefore everything's viewed as positive until, you know, maybe the, the trial fails or, you know, more, more cases start to explode. But for now, cases are down. The economy is hurting, but unfortunately, the stock market and the economy are two completely different things. I mean, the stock market fell in March when most people hadn't even heard of coronavirus, right? It was crashing. And now it's, it's shooting back up. Um, but there has been a lot of money 
injected in, right? The Fed's buying a lot of bonds and really there's, you know, you're, you only got a couple options to invest. You can invest in stocks, bonds, or cash. The only one that looks attractive right now is stocks. So what there, there's, there's rumblings that they're going to come out with a second stimulus. Is that possible? Is that realistic? And where are we at with that? I've heard it. It kind of sounds like the Trump administration thinks the economy is recovering, which, you know, they might be right on and, and they don't want to do another stimulus. And I know Pelosi is, is going for stimulus. I, it's so hard because like, you know, there's states like our own, like California, where dude, they need to open the state up. Like the, the numbers are pretty low. Like we got to get people back to work, but for some reason they're being ultra conservative. So they're going to end up hurting a lot of people doing that. One thing to add about just the kind of the stock market and the economic data though too, is all the economic data is backwards looking, right? Everything that happened in the past. And uh, as we know, we've talked about on previous podcasts, the stock market's looking forward. So we're pricing in everything that's in the future into the market. So the potential for potential profits from these companies. Um, so you're seeing a lot of these companies still doing well, like what's going to hurt Netflix profits going forward? You know, so their stock's doing good. And, and you have tons of other examples of companies that are still potentially going to do well when this is over or even get through this period. And so the stock market is is taking that into an account, not necessarily all of the backward looking data that's being reported, like GDP and unemployment numbers and all of that stuff. I think Walmart and Home Depot reported record earnings this week. Um, yeah. So again, like people are out spending money, just not, just not doing it at restaurants mm-hmm. or movie theaters. Let's head into retirement planning corner. Dave Ramsey really has been a money management influencer. The question that a lot of people have is, does he actually give good advice? Uh, he's a large radio show host. He has eight or nine different books and his stuff is pretty much everywhere. He does a lot of classes. He's in a lot of churches, but can his advice really be taken seriously? So we're going to tackle four of his main advices that he talks about in, in his books and, and, and we'll see if we agree with them. Uh, the first one is debt snowball. Dave recommends tackling debt by paying down the lowest balance first, regardless of interest rate. His argument is that paying the small ones off quickly builds up confidence and motivation to tackle the bigger amounts. Matthew, by starting, does that, uh, do you agree with that? Psychological. I mean, maybe for someone who's struggling to pay, pay their debt, paying the smallest one off will, will help them build confidence. But ideally, you should start with the highest interest rate. Silly psychological strategy. I don't care for it. Yeah, Josh. I agree. Completely, completely behavioral. There's no real data that says that that strategy and everyone's situation is completely different, but you know, typically the highest interest being paid first is going to be the, the smartest way or the, the fastest way to pay down the debt. So completely behavioral stance. I don't necessarily agree with it. I think that you need to take the, right approach that's good for you not so general of just saying that this snowball effect is good for everybody so i I don't agree with that i mean i guess the the most important thing when you're paying down debt is paying the least amount of interest right you'd hope so i i guess my my take on that would be pay the least amount of interest and learn why you've accrued so much debt and stop accruing new debt you know uh, don't worry about paying one off you're just going to add another one to it pay the least amount of interest and stop spending money if you can't afford things. I understand not all of it is controlled, but. 
And I think that that's like a, another approach after that, right? Is like cutting all spending. And that's one of the things that he, he talks about. But if you're wanting to do it the most efficient way, it's definitely not the most efficient. Right. Yeah. Wait before buying things, put things in your Amazon cart, wait a week or two and see if you still want it. And, and then possibly go back and buy it. If you hey, I do. I do that a lot. Yes, you, you, are very, <laughs> you are very good at that. Let's turn to investments and some of his investments advice. He says to just invest into mutual funds. And I'm paraphrasing. Ramsey often suggests that investing is as simple as picking a few different mutual funds. Just divide that money between growth, aggressive growth, growth in income, and international, and all will be fine. Now, Joshua, do you agree with that philosophy? No. I think that there's just a, a lot. Again, it goes back to the efficiency of investing. Do you want a better outcome? I don't think it's as easy as saying, just split it all up and pick a mutual fund and you're going to be fine and you're going to get a great interest rate. I think there has to be a philosophy that needs to be developed behind the investment strategy. And again, everyone's situation is a little bit different. I mean, this isn't incorporating time horizon within the investment strategy. When are you going to need this money or breaking it up between retirement or anything like that? Because they can't have different investment um, allocations or strategies. So I definitely don't think that uh, I, I agree with him on this side. What about you, Matt? Yeah. So I, I wish he would just be like, just call Vanguard or just buy Vanguard because I mean, then you'd be like, oh yeah, that makes more sense. But to, to pick a mutual fund, like what are the mutual funds fees? Is this a good mutual fund compared to the other? Is it active versus passive? I don't even know what growth and income is. And I've been an advisor for 10 years. <laughs> Like, how get, what, what, what does growth and income mean? I still don't understand I, that. I think he means balance, Matt. But. <laughs> no, I know. It's a mutual fund like, classification for these, you know, insurance sell or, you know, broker commission guys. I say, oh, yeah, here's growth and income. Look, you're going to get some growth and you're going to get some income. Best of both worlds. But, but yeah, it man, seems I'm like not- lately he's kind of, like, backed off from the investment stuff. Like, yeah, he's not, like. That's not like his biggest pitch anymore is like his investment advice. It's more of like that budgeting debt, like popularity. That's really probably because his investment advice isn't very good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would have to say that like you, Matt, not all mutual funds are created equal. Fees become a big part of it. If you have a fund that has high turnover, it could lead to capital gains rolling downhill to you. There's different fund managers out there. You just don't want some random fund manager managing that fund. And is it really diversified the way that you want it? I, I completely agree. I think it's not a, an answer you can tell someone to go pick out you know, from a magazine four top or five top mutual funds, and that's the best way to invest. There's a lot of smarter ways to invest uh, than doing that. So I, I, I wouldn't take that advice at all. Uh, The next one, Dave's unrealistic expectations. On several occasions, Dave has implied you can expect about a 12% return on your money if you follow his investing guidelines and that you can plan on spending 8% of your money. I repeat, 8% of your money per year in retirement and you'll be just fine. And a lot of this is in also the total money makeover uh, books. So what are your thoughts, Matt? We're we're laughing. I just want (laughs) to... For anyone watching us on YouTube, Matt's face was priceless, so continue. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't work like that. Uh, uh, so historically, if you invested in like a total stock market fund, like the Vanguard total stock market or the, you know, the S&P 500, you could expect to earn anywhere from 8 to 10% a year. Um, I usually quote 8 when I'm working with clients because you know I want to 
take the expectations down a little bit. Um, but you have to accept massive stock market volatility. We're talking you have to be able to stomach 50, 60, 70% drawdowns on your account to get that kind of return. And if you're taking that amount of risk, you can't pull 8% out of your portfolio. Makes zero sense. Mathematically, could, it doesn't work. You <laughs> could, but you just might not have that much money left. That's true. This to me is just a plan that's getting set up to fail in somebody's mind. Because if you told somebody that they're going to get and receive a 12% rate of return every year, that and you factor backwards. So let's say you were doing planning and you knew that you needed $2 million by the time that you retired. And you said you're going to get a 12% rate of return. The amount of money that you are going, it's going to tell you that you need to be saving on an annual basis is going to be far different than probably what you need. And you're never going to hit that target projecting a 12% rate of return because there's no guarantee that you're going to hit 12%. That's way overinflated. And then to think, so then if you did start down the line at retirement and say, okay, well, I can take out 8% of my money a year. And that's how you came up with that $2 million money amount and percentage. Like to factor, those are going to give you a wrong outcome. Like you're going to kill somebody's confidence with about three or four years when they're not getting a 12% rate of return. And even if they did follow that for all their retirement, to think that they're going to have enough money when they get to retirement that they can take out 8% of their money, probably... I mean, you, we've all looked at the academic research based on withdrawal rates. That's never going to be possible. The expectation is just way too high. I mean, even in a perfect world, we're looking at these numbers. And I, I think that's why Matt just started laughing. Is, it's just leaving in a perfect world, leaving no room for any error. And it still isn't projected well. So super unrealistic. When he said, I, I listened to his audible, his book, uh, the Total Money Makeover. I about hit the curb. I about hit the curb. <laughs> I was like, you know, I I don't understand how he got to that, or if it's even a, how it's even allowed to say that. But still, I wouldn't follow that advice. Don't let that be your expectation. Plan Brett, you, Brett, don't get me wrong, or you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I mean, what's that average rate of return that you use? Matt said he used eight percent, but to give a listener an idea of you know your rate of return that's expected in in your plans. Well, it depends on what age and stage the client is in. So if they're in an 80% stock portfolio, then it might be in the seven range. But you know, if it's a 60-40 portfolio, then it's going to be a lot lower than that because we want people to, we want to set them up for success. We want to get the client with enough money that we know that if they're going to get to retirement, that they're going to have enough. So we want to take down return and then test returns at different levels. For example, Let's test it at four. Let's test it at five. Let's test it at six. And then let's test the withdrawal rate at 3% and 4% to see if it works within the plan. So there isn't just one set hard line number that I feel comfortable just testing. And I want to test at different levels and let the client see what they're comfortable with. Because the client says, well, I like to be more conservative as possible. That means I want to save the most. Then I want to set them up to have that option. So that, that blanket statement by Dave Ramsey, I, I think it's a very general statement. I don't know how it gets away with it, but I don't agree with it. Neither. On number four, cut retirement savings while paying off debt. So Ramsey has suggested and outlined in his baby steps to stop contributing to retirement plans until you get out of debt. The only exception is the mortgage. Agree or disagree, Josh? Disagree if you do have a match from your company. Why would you sacrifice free money from a match in your 401k? To me, that's just a little bit counterproductive um, for your future. 
Also, it's just really confusing to me that let's say your debt is 8%. You have a credit card that's 10%. I know they're a lot higher, but just to give an example in some cases, but you have debt that's 8%, but the market's returning 12%. That's his expectation, right? Well, to me, if I'm kind of comparing those two interest rates, which one's higher? The investment expectation at 12%, not the debt at 8%. So why would I not invest the money? Okay. It's just kind of contradicting a little yeah. bit, depending on if you don't know the interest rate. I, again, I don't agree with that blanket statement. I think that it's a little bit more complex than that, depending on the situation, which requires a little bit more planning, um, of course. But you know, just as a blanket to not be contributing to retirement when we don't know if there's any sort of match or profit sharing or anything like that, I think that could be counterproductive to your retirement plan or your future. Let's say that you went with this strategy and you paid off your debt and it took you until you're in your 50s, right? Because a lot of people got a lot of debt. I mean, people make some big mistakes with debt, all right? Then you only have, what, five, 10 years to save for retirement? So then you're going to have to retire because sometimes you're forced to retire. And then you're just going to go back into debt because you, you don't may, have any savings. And at that point, you may not even be able to get the same kind of debt. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's it, paying debt, retirement, it's all very tricky topics. And unfortunately, it doesn't go over well on a podcast or a radio show. It's something that you need to meet one-on-one -on -one with a person and, yeah, because, and kind of discuss your options. Yeah, it becomes about accountability. I mean, you can't just listen uh, to a couple of his shows and read a few of his books and think that this is going to work. I understand like the program, but like you were saying, Josh, you, you have other factors here, right? You have company matching, you have tax savings on contributions, you have compounding interest, you have rate of return versus the cost of the debt. So there's so many factors in a calculation that would need to be done to say that this is going to work or it's not. And everybody's answer is going to be different. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, that was something I didn't even mention, but the tax savings, you're absolutely right. What is that real rate of return on the investment if you're saving money in taxes and getting 12%? And what are you paying on the interest? I mean, that takes a, a few more steps, but you're just going to get a better outcome in the future if you do take those steps to analyze the, your, your situation a little bit more in depth. I understand the premise behind his program. Like, He's doing like planning for people to try and take some those simple steps to get them in a better position. I, I understand that and I get that. And I think that has a powerful message and it helps so many people. He has a big platform and he's able to help so many people that are in those beginning steps. But you got to be very careful like what's in the individual person's best interest. And I think where I get the most concerned with his program is a lot of his programs are in the churches. So that's what the churches do is the, the pastor will set up these programs to be listened to and they have the speakers come in and the speaker speaks at the church and takes them through a eight week course or six week course. But what we've seen and we've heard from other people is that at the end, there's these advisors that they have set up strategically set up in these programs that start working with the clients and the end result that's being done out of this is they're moving money to annuities, insurance products. They're moving monies to mutual funds with commission-based sales. So it's not some program where you're just getting some basic financial steps. There's a real sales to this. I know his whole company there. I mean, they're selling books, programs, classes, budgeting tools, merchandise. They have speakings, conferences. They have advisors working for them. 
So there's a lot more behind this message than just some some blanket advice that he's he's giving people over the radio. Yeah, he's trying to make money off you, and that's yeah. sad. Yeah, and, and that's what I I feel like gets lost in the translation, and a lot of people really value his advice. But us being in the industry, you can really see behind what's leading all this. I mean, you can just go to a site and you can see. I mean, there there's a whole financial benefit to all of this, and you know, he has seven or eight, nine books for a reason. I mean, he's selling a lot of different things. So be very careful with that. Without having one-on-one -on -one advice, what works for one doesn't always work for the other. Yeah, good point. Any other, any other thoughts on him? No, I think I think you summarized it well. And just be mindful. I think that for a lot of people, if it is something that you, you were recommended, you know, save more, spend less. I mean, that's the general idea that we also preach too, if that's going to help you get started, but just be mindful with all the tips and making sure that you're cross-referencing, making sure you're taking a good look at, you know, in-depth analysis of your situation to make the right decision for you. But um, uh, well put, Brent. I think it was a good summary. Yeah, I, th I think some basic steps are good, but if you want accountability and, and real financial planning, counseling, I mean, it really doesn't come through just general recommendations. Sure. Uh, let's go into RPA recommends. Uh, we're in a, some more time in quarantine. Josh, what do you have for an RPA recommends for this podcast? I'm just going to give a shout out to my local Trader Joe's. Big Trader Joe's fan for a long time, but um, their system from even when the start of quarantine has just been pretty good. You know, they only let so many people in, and lot. You know, they have a good system with their line, even the checkouts. Um, so I just want to give a shout out to my local. Trader Joe's and definitely recommend them um, as a grocery store because they have uh, made it easy for me to continue to shop um, and, and get out of the house and go to the grocery store. And uh, that's what I recommend this week. And feel safe doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it. that's important, right? I, I mean, one of the other options too is Instacart's become a lot popular as well. And then, you know, the, the grocery delivery, but when I go to the grocery store, at least they're still making me feel safe while uh, while we're doing it. And that was already my favorite grocery store before, and it still is, so that's good as well. What do you have for us, Matt? Well, as you know, Josh and I have been playing a ton of golf. Um, we have a ton of listeners who are, who are big golf fans and, uh, you know, quite a few clients that play as well. And it's been a while since I started, since I played. Like, I haven't played in about, about five, six years before um, this last month. And there's all this new technology and you could get um, a couple apps for your phone, golf shot and 18 birdies. And when you're playing the course, they use your phone's GPS to show you how far you are from, from the hole, which is really cool. So you could get some better club selection. Um, anyways, I, I used it this past weekend and, you know, for you golfers out there who aren't using it, I mean, great tool. I, I don't know if some, you know, people think it's cheating, but, uh, no, it's not cheating. You're just getting a good read on the distance. That's, uh, uh, it, it even has a watch app, too. So you just pull, pull, look at your watch, and it tells you how far away you are. So really it's cool. It's like having a caddy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like an iPhone caddy. And the watch, the watch feature is definitely, I'll have to piggyback on that recommendation. Look down at your watch, see your distance. Definitely a big fan of that. What about you, Brent? Uh, my R RPA recommends with the gym's still being closed, and in California, it looks like they're still going to be closed for some time. I don't know. I don't know anybody has a good idea when they're going to be opening. Uh, if you are working out at home, I'd recommend getting a TRX band. 
Uh, you can go to one of the just Google search TRX bands and they have been an extremely valuable piece to be able to work out. Like I didn't need to buy a weight set or tons of different things. A TRX band is a, a very good way to have natural weight resistance and just being able to work out. There's tons of workouts that you can do with the TRX band. I mean, you can work out for years and, and be very comfortable using the TRX band. Uh, you can Google just some TRX exercises, but that TRX band has really helped me work out at home without needing, you know, I don't need 25 and 30 and 40 pound weights sitting in my garage. By a TRX band, you hook it up to the door and you're able to really get some really good resistant body weight workout. And I think it's a great workout at home. And then go outside after you're done and, and take a run. It's nice to be outside right now. I saw you the other day, bro, and you are one of the few people who has managed to lose weight during quarantine. <laughs> you, you look fantastic. Dude, and here I am rolling in. Like, I, you know, I'm looking a little heavy, shorts barely buttoned in. Uh, might need new shirts. Dude, it looks like you're you're going dropping a size and I'm going up a size. Well, you know, part of it was in the beginning of quarantine, like when we didn't really know how much the food supply was going to be impacted. And I started seeing all the people like hoard Costco in the grocery stores. I really didn't know how the food was going, what, what was going to happen. We had a decent amount of stock here, but I didn't know what was going to happen. So I just became very minimalist. I wasn't eating overeating. I want to make sure my kids had food. So I was eating basically scraps, you know, and working out, but working out, <laughs> but working out has uh, got me through this. So I've been working out with my wife and I get up pretty much every morning during the week. Um, and we were, we're working out. So I'm enjoying doing that because we never get a workout together. So it's been actually really fun. But yeah, my suit, my wife laughed at me too. She said, my, cause I have a really tight fitted suit and it was not tight and fitted. It was very baggy. So I might have to take it to the tailor shop after this. So thank you for listening to the Retirement Plan Playbook. If you'd like to learn more about us or read the show notes, please go to the Retirement Plan Playbook. We thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. Thank you. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide Form ADV Part 2A from Brochure and 2B Brochure Supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcasts. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.